Thanks to that extensive survey by the Government Accountability Office, we know just how empty federal offices really are. None of them are more than half full. And that's depressed the market for certain commodities a lot of vendors counted for each year as a kind of annuity. Federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen joins me with more. And we're talking furniture, desks, that kind of stuff, which was always a good living for those that figured out how to sell it to the government. Tom, these are things that are good li- uh, good livings for the people that sell them, whether it's uh, office furniture, whether it's things like office supplies, multifunction devices, what we used to call printers, things of that nature. It's a significant part of the federal market when you think about the fact that the federal furniture market's a little over a billion dollars a year. doesn't always make headlines, but the old saying is that all adds up, right? And then when you particularly look into the office supply part of it that's shrinking, that's got a socioeconomic part to it as well, because we're talking about a lot of small businesses that do significant business with the government, but we're also talking about the Ability One program places like the National Industries for the Blind that traditionally are heavily invested in providing those commodity type office supplies and other things that make an office function. But if you're not in that office or if you're not in that office very much, then the market for those things is certainly going to be depressed. Yes, I can remember when agencies like a lot of businesses went through a big process to consolidate everyone. So every manager didn't have a printer in his or her office, and they went to network printers. So it's unlikely that the government is buying printers for everyone that is working from their house. They'll say, well, print the PDF if you want to print it, and otherwise you're on your own for physical output. So it's fair to say fewer printers are going in. Well, that's certainly right, and that's the anecdotal evidence that I'm hearing from some of the companies that I work with is that uh, the demand for that type of product and the demand for print management services is on the decline. And when you look at the numbers, not just the vacancy numbers, which as GAO pointed out, are pretty substantial. Even if people are going back into the office, it's probably only for two, maybe three days a week in many cases. So even when you're there, you're not printing out as much as you were. Uh, You can further consolidate that office space, which is kind of what GAO was saying, which means that you can do things like share desks, share workstations, So you don't need to buy as many of them. Uh, You might need to buy some one-off stuff to keep everything current. But, you know, these large-scale buys, and again, they have ramifications outside of industry. Another mandatory source status uh, for federal agencies that is in this area is federal prison industries that uh, for decades has made a significant part of its business selling office furniture to federal agencies. So, you know, there are a lot of things here that go beyond the mere vacancy issue. Yes, the ability one, the federal prison industries, these have social value as well. And those people are simply not, I mean, the pens and all those supplies that came from the ability one program, that's got to be way off. You know, I think it is off. And, I, you know, there's a trend in the, that part of the ability one program, Tom, to get more into professional services. I think uh, the statistics such as these are only going to hasten that. Uh, transition into the provision of services. It's definitely a different model for some of these organizations that are used to selling physical products, but the times are changing and uh, people are going to need to keep pace. Yeah, probably Amazon is the big beneficiary if somebody wants that box of big sticks. 
It's just easier to get it on Amazon for three ninety nine than to figure out how to get it from your agency. Right, right. Well, I think you know we're going to start to see some of the figures roll in here towards year end on GSA's commercial platform initiative that Amazon, Overstock Government, and Fisher Scientific are all part of. And I'm expecting that we're going to have some pretty sizable increases uh, in those sales numbers, Tom, and that could be this could be one reason why. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and there's a lot going on on the scene. We are in the final quarter of the fiscal year, and so there's a big buying to the extent that this year can produce a buying bonanza at all. And it's all pretty much, and we're looking at Bloomberg numbers here, through the big GWACs, the IDIQ contracts that are government-wide. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting, Tom. A few weeks ago, Bloomberg government came out with initial projections showing that maybe 60% of all fourth quarter buys would go through standing indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts, things like uh, NIH's CISP program, the GSA schedules, NASA soup, what have you. And then they revised those numbers. Bloomberg came out just last week and said, not 60, but maybe as much as 66%, two thirds of all Q4 spending, Tom, going through these IDIQ vehicles, that's pretty significant. I think some of the reasons for that are obvious. One, they're fast and easy to use. Second, uh, they've got easy competition uh, features built into them. Third, there's a substantial amount of small business presence on most of these IDIQs. And for agencies that are trying to meet their end of year small business use numbers and do it in a fast and cost-effective way, IDIQ contracts just make sense. Right. And so that gives a clue to what vendors should be concentrating on, which is whatever vehicles you have existing and forget about the new open competition starting fresh from scratch type of activity. If you want to have a chance of making your numbers this year, work your vehicles. Well, I think there's a lot to that, Tom. I mean, certainly there are always going to be open market procurements that the government does. That's kind of the backbone of the system. But at fourth quarter, there simply isn't enough time to start every new acquisition from scratch. You need to get yourself halfway through the process at least. And that's another reason why IDIQ contracts are popular. So if you're a contractor, you definitely want to have some of these contracts in your portfolio, or at least work with companies, the partners that do, so you can sell through them. Not every contract has that feature, but many of them do. You want to make sure that, you know, you've got your IDIQ channel tuned up and ready to go because that's clearly where the business is. Now, that's this year and it was last year. Ironically, Tom, you and I have spent a fair amount of the time last several months talking about delays in getting new IDIQ contracts put in place. Most recently, that's been on the GSA Polaris program and also NIH's CAOSP4. IDIQ contracts are popular. We know they drive business. This is proof positive of that. And yet, because they're so popular, companies are looking at this as do or die. And the result is that the time it takes to put these new programs in place keeps expanding. So uh, we'll have to see if there's some sort of a tipping point in the future that says, you know, these are great vehicles, but we can't get new ones in place. So we're going to have to figure out something new. But for now, 
IDIQ contracts are certainly a very significant part of any company's government business. And briefly, I wanted to ask you about something else you're commenting on this week, and that is what you call the two-pronged compliance battlefront for contractors, including dealing with the Justice Department's Procurement Collusion Strike Force, which sounds like, wow, they're coming for me one way or another. It kind of sounds like Darth Vader is leading the Procurement Collusion Strike Force, Tom. You can almost hear the Empire music playing in the background. But that's just one prong that contractors need to be aware of in terms of compliance. Certainly, the government's tools, not just DOJ, but agency IGs, things like the Defense Contract Audit Agency. But you also need to look on the other side. And sometimes the other side is in your own backyard or maybe in your back office. And that's whistleblowers. Whistleblowers typically disgruntled employees, former employees, even competitors, Tom. And I find that while there's always a risk of audit for a contractor, a lot of the bigger False Claims Act cases and a lot of the ones that certainly in terms of the sheer number are initiated by whistleblowers. And so if you're a contractor, you really have to pay attention to this two-front compliance battlefield. Yes, you need to make sure that everything's squared away for the auditor when the auditor comes knocking, but you also need to make sure that you've got the processes in place for people to be heard, for complaints to be heard and processed so that people don't feel like the only way out is to file a whistleblower complaint. So it's both you know, formal government and informal from your colleagues at industry. As always, I think compliance is pennies on the dollar, but you really do have to look at it as a two-front war. Yeah, and if a whistleblower comes to you first and says, hey, you know, we're overcharging on this contract, take it seriously, look at it before you end up in a False Claims Act situation where you could have punitive damages. It's far easier, Tom, to address issues when they come up as opposed to just letting them sit. It's great to have money rolling in, but if you know or should have known that you are overbilling on a contract, somebody calls it to your attention and you do nothing about it, you're kind of setting your company up for a multi-year entanglement with all kinds of uh, the oversight community, lost revenue, fines potentially to pay, legal bills to pay, and then even up to and including loss of key personnel if you want to show people how you uh, take these things seriously and prevent yourself from being suspended from doing future business. Well, now that we've taken all of the joy out of the end of year (laughs) buying season, Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking 
earlier too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves 
uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. 
you want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, <laughs> Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.